Oh, it's time. I wonder if they're having trouble with the connection again. I suspect so, because the bishop was out of town and he's probably yeah. scrambling. To... Plus, John is, you know, just had a baby. That's right. <laughs> True. <laughs> so he probably isn't as available. Well, John didn't have the baby. Yeah. Rachel had the baby. <laughs> True. Has she been to church? Has she been back yet? Is she, is she no. Home? Yeah. He was in she the did? morning here. Oh. Yeah, he was in the morning. Well, did everybody, did everybody read the chapter? Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad there's not a test. <laughs> Hi, Christine. <laughs> Hi, Rhonda. She can't hear me, I guess. <laughs> so we're waiting on the bishop to yes. realize <laughs> to buzz us in. Yes. Yeah. Right. <laughs> we were wondering if if he's having trouble because John's not there and he just got back in town. Right. Yes. I just wondered that. I know last week he um he couldn't. There's something he couldn't do. I mean, it didn't really affect us. Yeah, he couldn't get it on the big screen, so he just did it That's with the right. Yeah, the with the, the yeah. <clears throat> but at, but at least we all connected, you know. So. Okay, Ross. Uh, apologize for the late arrival of online friends. Without John and Rachel, I, it's a John and Rachel appreciation day today. And so I don't, again, I don't know, I don't really know how to turn the big TV on. So you got me here face to face. That's what we got. That's how we're rolling with it. And um, I give you one peek at everybody here. There we are with that. And uh, as I said, I uh, I didn't give you like study notes because I was in Denver, so we just walked our way through Revelation five. Oh, me, oh shoot! I, and of course, what notes I did write, I left upstairs for myself. I'm gonna go on memory. I do not want to run upstairs today. Um, all right, let us pray. Blessed Lord has caused all holy scriptures written for our learning. Grant me in such wise, hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which has given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Hello, everyone. Um, for those, let's see here, what, why is my Bluetooth not working? For those who can't see them, we have Ruth, Mimi, Christine, Elizabeth, and Ed online. Mimi, glad you found how to get on. Good to see you. So, and here we have, uh, well, let's just jump in. I don't want to, I've got another, another thing to think about today that I don't want, I don't want to do, so. Um, so we're, we're getting into um, chapter five, and we talked last time about in chapter four how um, we want to be conscious of the liturgical nature of this thing, that um, 
Revelation is unfolded as in chapter one, the appearance of Jesus, chapters two and three, letters to the churches, uh, prophetic message, a liturgy of the word, if you will. Chapter four, John came up here. We, we, we commented on the similarity between John being called up to heaven and what in the Bible? Who, being, who else being called up where? Think mountain. Moses, yes. Moses being, and feel free to, we can hear you who just been online, so you feel free to. Um, so, because God said to Moses, come up here, and Moses went up to get the commandments. Um, and so John is called to come up here, and it's not insignificant that we're going to get a covenant, a covenant document in chapter five that, that relates to the document that Moses got on Mount Sinai when he went up there. We, just, we, we mentioned last time that um, the, um, John was, how was John able to go up there in the spirit? Exactly. That's the mode of, um, and it's interesting, uh, this, this Sunday we're going to do St. Philip and St. James and the gospel um, mentions this passage that we all know about that uh, um, I'm the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Uh, I think we think of it cognitively, okay, we pray to, you know, to God through Jesus, we get there. But there's also the experiential dimension of that is Jesus gives us the spirit through which we come to the Father through the Son. And, and so John is, is, that's how we also, only in the spirit uh, can, can we make that ascension. And, and part of the distinction here, again, we're seeing here is, is with John and, and the vision here is that, is that what was limited in the Old Testament to the priests now pertains to the entire people of God. What else did we see last time? That let it, what did we see last time, the stars of chapter four, who let us know this is the presence of God? What kind of heavenly creature are they called? Huh? Keep going. Cherubim. You said, did you say seraphim? Yeah. Cher, the cherubim. These are cherubim. Uh, seraphim or Isaiah 6. That's where they're mentioned. By. Now, clearly, being in, in the presence of God, the seraphim are hanging out somewhere here. But, but the importance, what's the importance of the cherubim in, in the scriptures? And then the mercy seat in the temple. They're always with God. Why? Where does God live? There's a, there's a refrain. Uh, we, we have it in one of our morning prayer canticles. Uh, who who um, beholdeth the depths and dwelleth between the cherubim. So, and God, God, it's wherever the, cherub, the cherubim mark the very presence of God. So where they are, God is, because that's what they do and all the, all the things we looked at there. Um, what do they sing? Holy, holy, holy. Uh, two places in the Bible where that comes in, that hymn, just like that. What's the other place? I just mentioned it. Isaiah 6, where the seraphim also, uh, and, and the seraphim version is more like our liturgical verse. They say, heaven, earth, and full of his glory. This is holy, holy, yours. They're just, they're just different heavenly creatures. Uh, the cherubim have been described here. The seraphim are described as having wings, but the, the word means burning creatures. Burning creatures. So they're, I think, on fire with the presence and love of God would be the idea, I think. Hence, they were able to take the live coal from the altar and touch Isaiah's lips because they were the burning creatures. Seraphim. 
These are the cherubim. And where else do we see in the Bible the cherubim we went look back? Ezekiel. So that's what uh, Ezekiel sees the cherubim. And what does Ezekiel see happen to the cherubim in relationship to the presence of God or the Holy of Holies? What's that? But what happens in the narrative of Ezekiel? They leave, which means what else left? God's presence left the Holy Folies. And which way did they leave Jerusalem by way of what was, what, what mountain did they stop on the way out of town? Mount of Olives. We talked about Jesus coming back in that way. So there's their wheels. They could go anywhere they wanted to go. Yeah. So um, that does make the point that the holy of hold, that, that the presence of God left the old covenant uh, Israel in the judgment that came and never fully returned. So that so that Israel between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New um, had a temple rebuilt. And they offered sacrifices, but God never re-inhabited it like he did. If you read in, um, when King Solomon built and dedicated the temple in Kings, um, he had a big prayer of dedication where the glory cloud comes in and God, as it was, takes up residence. In, in uh, Ezekiel, God leaves, and there's no other reference that he ever comes back until our Lord on the donkey, on the Mount of Olives, comes into Jerusalem, undoing the steps of the departing cherubim. And, and so all of this imagery there is important. But it also gives us the, the, the sense of, is, of intertestamental Israel. So that is to say that after the end of the Old Testament and until the coming of Jesus, there was no presence of God in the temple. We don't know what happened to the Ark of the Covenant. There's all kinds of... We're all kinds of... Uh, mythologies and and uh, there's a there's a book that talks about it's in Ethiopia somewhere, uh, but but that characterizes the intertestamental period. It's why the apocryphal books that are written between the end of the Old Testament and the New Testament we read them, but they don't have the status as scriptures because just as there's no presence of God in the temple, there is nobody in that period to whom the word of the Lord comes so that they can say, thus saith the Lord. It doesn't mean that the writings aren't worth reading, but we, that's why we, we hold the apocryphal books to be important to read. We read them, but they're not as important as the other. There's no one, yeah, if they're not, there's no prophet until who comes? John the Baptist. That's the importance of John the Baptist is it's been four or five hundred years since Israel has had someone who could say, thus saith the Lord. And, and that's why this is the word of the Lord came to John the Baptist by the Jordan. That hadn't happened for a long, long time. Well, um, chronologically, it might have been Malachi. Um, it, it, in, in the actual, because there are prof, there's, there's prophets uh, who spoke, um, but it wouldn't have been Ezekiel because Ezekiel wasn't around. The temple got rebuilt, and Haggai and Zechariah uh, and and, uh, and um, speak to the rebuilding of the temple. And Malachi seems to have a prophetic word for the people living in the rebuilt temple. And you know, chastising them for the for the usual things, and but and, and, and it's interesting that the last words of Malachi, which are the last words of just in sequence of the Old Testament, are uh, before the coming of the great and terrible day, I will send you the prophet Elijah. So that John the Baptist is, we're told by Saint Luke, he comes in the quote spirit and power of Elijah. So anyway, a lot of stuff. There's all that stuff. So let's jump in now to chapter five of Revelation. And in um, four, we have clearly one on the throne. We talked about the throne last week. And we, 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 had, the seven, we had the seven spirits mentioned. 
but we're going to get a missing piece here. So, verse chapter 5, verse 1. I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Now, obviously, a big interpretive key to this chapter is what is this scroll? Um, we're given some clues to it. The, the idea that the writing is inside and on the back on both sides, it mirrors the language that's used to the Ten Commandments that God wrote on both sides of the stone. Um, but the scroll uh, and the seal was also a, a document uh, in the ancient world of a, of a, of a sort of testament um, that, that uh, someone would leave when they died so that you would, so that the heirs could come into their inheritance. And so um, this, so, but these are not mutually exclusive concepts because the covenant on Mount Sinai was, yes, it was the Torah, the instruction, but it also made promises. And so this has the um, sort of dual sense clearly of being a, la a will and testament that 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 will help that will allow uh, those who who are the recipients of it to come into their inheritance, and it's a covenant document. It's the document of the new covenant, not the old covenant, but the new covenant. So it's not merely, as we've seen throughout Revelation, it's not merely the same thing as Moses got on Mount Sinai. It's a fulfilled version of that. It's not stone towers, but now it's a scroll and it's sealed. Jesus holding the seals because he's unsealed it in our stained glass window. He's holding the seven seals and the idea that he's giving the blessing is he's come into his inheritance. Because after you open it, you got to switch it so you can bless with your right hand. Incidentally, uh, just to sort of tickle your interest, if you're interested, we're actually talking to our stained glass window maker because we're going to start pursuing a project of turning this whole side into stained glass. Figured out. I mean, I have some ideas, but we need to have a long-term conversation. We're not, but we'll. It'll be opened up to. What's that? There's a lot of things we can do, and so that's something we'll have to kind of think about. I, I suspect we might even, in a minor way, rebuild the wall or, or redo it. Um. Yeah. Well. Yeah, I, the blessing with the two finger thing is just sort of the, 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 the that's Christ um, in, in the iconography of the East, it's the Pantocrator, the ruler of all. And so it's the, it's the two fingered blessing is something that um, it's in our tradition, bishops give a two fingered blessing where priests give a whole handed blessing. And it's just kind of showing that sort of overarching he's got the really overarching one so I, I, that makes sense divine and human natures yeah that, that's good that, that that would make sense well what, what we we said that when we so I, we're talking now about about the liturgical blessing given given by the priest or bishop. We also have taught that when we make the sign of the cross, um, we can we can um, put th you know I can't remember how I do it, but three fingers together for the Trinity, and the remaining two are for the divine and human natures of Jesus. So, so um, yeah. Well, no, maybe it's like this: the three are the Trinity, and the two tucked away. That's what it is. Yeah, yeah. 
So there's that. There, so, so when you make the sign of the cross, the three fingers together are the Trinity, and the two tucked away are the divine and human natures. And it, you know, so. <laughs> As a different kind of piece they were talking about. So, um, so, so he, there's a scroll, and so let's get the scene here. God, the guy on the throne we saw in chapter four, he who sat on the throne, which we understand to be God the Father in the Old Testament, without shape, form, luminously glorious, but not visible, uh, and the Spirit, he's got the covenant document, he's got his inheritance, and who's going who's gonna to get it? Because Israel was his heir, but what happened to Israel? Their unfaithful did not fulfill the stipulations of the inheritance document. So like you might say, I'm leaving all my stuff to my children, but to receive it, they've got to do what I tell them to do. You know, or if they do this, they don't get it. Well, Israel did that and they don't get it. So um, that's the point. But that's also the point of the New Testament when, you know, in Romans it says all have sinned. Um, that that is the point of the old covenant according to saint paul is it highlights human sin i don't mean that we shouldn't obey the ten commandments make our best efforts but we should do that knowing that you never will perfectly do it some point in your life you're going to covet some point in your life will be some this some, you know so the idea of perfect fulfillment that's, that's what the covenant revealed is nobody could do it. And that's the lesson of Israel ending up in exile in the end of the Old Testament with no divine presence and no prophet. The spirit's been taken away because she's been unfaithful. Ooh, so, so what we're going to see in this chapter here in, in the upcoming lament echoes the basic position of Israel. There's this inheritance promised by God that they can't get to. <clears throat> then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? There's a liturgy here, obviously a rhetorical question because the strong angel knows the answer. But that's, it's, it's, you know, who is his, who's worthy? And you can kind of see the scene, who's worthy? And like looking for a candidate. And the Old Testament had candidates. Moses was a candidate. But he did something that, said, that made God say to him, you don't get into the promised land. Because you didn't give glory to my name at this one miracle. You know, Abraham for him was a candidate, but Abraham had his issues, you know, like to pass off his wife as a sister and um, a lot of things like that. Um, other candidates, um, David was a candidate, but there's that little Bathsheba thing. Um, so all these candidates we get, we, we get, there's, so when he says, who's worthy? We're all like, well, he's a pretty good guy, but not enough to go up and, and take from not worthy enough to approach the throne, grab the inheritance and unseal it. And no one, so was it? A strong angel, not a weak, I don't, is there a weak angel, I wonder? <laughs> There's always speculation on these things. We'll get Michael later in Revelation, um, Was that? Yeah, a lot of them up there. Well, those are also false. They're they're period art uh, that 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 um, that are so false. Angels are not cute. They're so frightening that should they re should if you have an angel should your there's reason you don't get to see it because you would. We'd be like this. Um, we're not ready. And that's part of the worthiness. It's not just 
a legal worthiness. It's that you literally couldn't get there. It's kind of like the image here might be a little bit of the C.S. Lewis brings out in The Great Divorce where the gray people, the the shade, they can't walk on the ground. So somebody who's not worthy, who's not been fully transformed, literally cannot. It's not just God won't let it happen. It's that you literally can't do it. It'd be like trying to go into outer space without a spacesuit or something. It's just, it, is, it, is, it is just engineeringly impossible. So verse 3, and no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth is able to open the scroll or look at it. And that's a very important division. Where else do we see that? In heaven, earth, under the earth. Think Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not make of thyself any graven image, or the likeness of anything that is in the heaven above, in the earth beneath, or the water under the earth. It's the threefold division of creation. So what he's saying, no one in all, that's when he says no one in heaven and earth and under the earth means no one in all of creation. Was able to open the scroll or look at it. So I wept much. That's Israel in exile. That's us on Good Friday. <laughs> because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or look at it. But one of the elders said to me, do not weep. Um, there are some, at least it calls to mind a little bit of Magdalene on weeping at the tomb because she thought that it was all over and yet there, there, there was this reality of being very close to hope. But one of the elders said to me, do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seals. Now, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Where do we first have that image? Yes, it's exactly where, where Jacob, in, in Genesis 49, Jacob, whose name is changed to Israel, the, the God makes covenant with Abraham, then Isaac, his son, then with Jacob and his 12 sons of the 12 tribes. When Jacob dies um, and he gives the deathbed blessing, which has a sense of a testament, um, and God, and God has made the promise. This is the importance in the scriptures of the promise. The promise is made to Abraham and his seed. So Abraham and his seed is to then Isaac, then to Jacob. So it's important how, how Jacob, as it were, um, dispersed his inheritance. And in Genesis 49, when it talks about his um, inheritance, the tribe of Judah, was that the oldest son? No. So in, in, in Genesis 49, actually, the, the oldest son was Reuben, who had slept with his father's concubine, and so he ruled him out. Simeon and Levi were the next two born, and they were cruel and brutal, wiping out a whole town because the son of the king uh, wanted to marry their sister and did it a little too quickly. And so he wiped everybody out. They, and, and so Jacob passes by them. Cursed be their anger for his fears, 49.7 says. We get to, to verse 8 of chapter 49 of Genesis. Judah, you are he whom your brothers shall praise. Your hand should be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's whelp, the lion of the tribe of Judah. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He, he bows down, he lies down as a lion, as a lion who shall rouse him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. There's a whole interpretive issue with 49.10 welcome into today. 
and to him shall be the obedience of the people. So, poor child, Judah. So when, we, when he says the line of the tribe of Judah, again, we want to be clear here that Revelation is firmly rooted in the Old Testament. This is saying, here is the guy Jacob's talking about. And it makes that there's a specific, and this is a point that, um, that St. Paul makes about Abraham when he says, in your seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. You could take that as meaning that Abraham's presence in the world was a general blessing to all humanity. But St. Paul says, no, that's not what it meant. It meant a particular descendant who is Christ. And so here it is that that blessing comes to Judah and through Judah to David, but then David to, to, um, to Christ. Um, yeah, because it, it could mean until it could mean a lot of things. Just look up any commentator and, you, and take it. Shiloh always it always has such a messianic. So I like the sound of it. I don't know if it's the right one or not, but. <laughs> And the light of Judah, that's right. The other thing we have there is in that verse is um, the root of David. Um, Isaiah 11, there shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse and a branch shall grow out of its roots. And it goes on to say, to talk about his judgments. And um, it, it talks about the sevenfold spirit resting upon him. That's where we get the sevenfold spirit of confirmation. Probably worth reading here. There shall come forth a, a, a rod from the stem of Jesse, a branch shall grow out of his roots. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge. And uh, you need to read the Septuagint version of it to get seven gifts. And that's what our prayer book, Prayer for Confirmation, is based on those sevenfold gifts. Because in, in the other versions, you only get six. What is it? Six gifts. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Unless you think what you talk about Septuagint and all that, just type it in your Google, Septuagint version of Isaiah 11. And that's one thing people say, I can't find anything. Like, are you kidding me? You used to have to go to a library. Now you just sit at your computer, type in a question. You may get some bad answers among the results, but you get you, you get a lot of places there. And, and uh, Christians are pretty aggressive in being on there, so you can usually find something. So, but he says, um, but let's, let's go on to say, his delight is in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by the sight of his eyes, nor decide by the hearing of his ears, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his loins and faithfulness the belt of his waist. I only read that on because what we're going to get in Revelation is, is righteous judgment. And that's exactly what this image and, and the scepter we've got in Isaiah. So the, the point of this is to highlight this is entirely, again, a covenant document rooted entirely within the realm of the old covenant, but moving it forward into fulfillment now in the light of Jesus. The line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed. Now, I looked at that this morning. And I really don't like the New King James choice there. That is conquered. Same word uh, comes from our the Nike. Uh, so he's conquered. Prevailed just sounds like, oh, okay, I prevailed. So he conquered to open the scroll and loose its seals. So how did he conquer? And this, this is very important for our own sense of the spiritual life. What did he do? 
What do you do before you do that? Hmm? Live the faithful life. He perfectly obeyed the Torah. But unless, unless I think sometimes also um, we can get caught up in, um, you know, he, he perfectly obeyed the Torah. But I, I think one of the things that sometimes is missing in in the idea here of, of perfectly obeyed is it's like we see a list of rules and we break a couple of them, but he obeyed them all. And it isn't so much it is includes that, but it's not just a legal obedience but it is the faithful heart that desires the Father's will. And so um, he conquered by living a life on earth that resisted temptation. He wouldn't take all the kingdoms of the world in exchange for, in exchange to, for, for a compromise. Wouldn't use his power to, to, you know, to, to cut short the appointed fast. Wouldn't perform cheap tricks to get people to follow him. But for us, it's, we have all these same temptations to, to find a shortcut. Yeah, he agonized, Jack says he agonized in doing the right thing. The whole, the, the, the agony in the garden is, it, what it shows us is sometimes it's hard to do the right thing. And, and so it's not wrong to embrace and acknowledge that it's hard to do the right thing. And that's where we, we find union with Christ and his cross. That's our cross. Yeah, it, and this is, this, is, this is also something quintessentially Christian, at least, you know, biblically Christian, not always culturally Christian, that um, of the essence of faith is suffering. God, and the way God uses it, because so much of our cultural faith is a way to run from it. And, 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 and so the, the point here, and this even gets into our own now obeying the commandments, we don't want to just get back to the set of legal rules, but the idea of that as Christ, the spirit rested on him and in the spirit, he perfectly loved God and others out of intent. And that caused him to do the thing. And so we, when we're living in Christ and if we're gonna conquer, it is our desire to fulfill the, the, the demands of love, to really like, really be concerned what's good for you. I may not always know what that is. And legalistic religion reduces that to, well, if I do these three things, then I'm righteous. And unfortunately, it's not that easy. That's why we make legalistic religion, because we don't want to have to wrestle with doing the right thing, which is really hard. Like, Father, it would be possible, but nonetheless, and all that kind of stuff, so I just highlight what, that, that um, he's prevailed to open the scroll and loose its seals. We conquer the very same way by following in his path of, of faithful, faithfulness in the spirit, which we've been given living in Christ. It's the same pathway. And when we and when we see with the Holy Spirit, we see what reality is under not the illusion of this world. So verse six, I looked and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain. Having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Now. This is um, probably, this verse, as much as any descriptive phrase, is a highlighting of the divinity of Christ. Because where is he? In the midst of the throne, in the midst of the living creatures, he is where God lives. Therefore, he must be God.
Well, he, they give us these images because we can't, yeah, I mean, it's even better than, than that, I think. Um, now, this lamb, uh, it's pointed out that it's actually the word for lamb is actually different than is used in John's gospel for lamb. There's also a, um, a tradition in the intertestamental period of, of, a, of a, in some of the uh, pseudo-apocryphal books, of a, of, a, of a vengeful lamb, a lamb will come in judgment. And so the lamb here, um, ha it's a very paradoxical image because in one level, a lamb is, but another level, this is the lamb who's going to, you know, and, and it's, it's why it is paradoxical. But it's, it's paradoxical in the same way that um, this image here really relates very much to the image you read in church today and the gospel of last Sunday. Jesus came in the room and showed them his hands and his side. There is the lamb as though it had been slain. And as though it had been slain um, would mean that like it looked like it got killed, but somehow it's alive. So in, in, for, a, for a lamb in, in, in the New Testament, it would be had its throat cut, but standing there. That's transferring him to Jesus, where, okay, here are the marks of crucifixion, but you're alive. And having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. I, there's an interesting thing in this commentary that, 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 uh, that I hadn't, hadn't uh, yeah, that one, that Chilton pointed out was that um, in Genesis, um, seven times, and I haven't checked it, but seven times, God, it, it is said, uh, God looked and saw that it was good. So the seven spirits coming out of his eyes, it's all this, the perfection of the spirit, and it go, traces back to Genesis where God sees. But even in Genesis, see, this is a revelation of a mystery here, hidden, that is, it's always been there, but now we're seeing, which is that in the beginning, God created by his word through the spirit. And it turns out his word is his son, and so when God saw the Father who created through the Son, when the Son saw is good, he, he saw. So this is the same eyes that proclaim the whole creation good, now can search out and see perfectly. That's the seven. And the seven horns are the perfection and completeness of power. Seven is that. Sent out into all the earth, which, which has both the sent out to save and to judge. We'll get this in one of our Eastertide um, gospel lessons when Jesus says, when the spirit of truth has come, he'll guide you into all truth, but he'll convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment, but he'll lead you into all truth. So the spirit has this dual horizon of ministry of conviction and, and, and uh, leading into truth. Question? Yes, Ed. The, the, the seven uh, spirits of God mentioned here in chapter 5, is that the same seven spirits in Isaiah 11? Playing in the same symbolic world. You know, that the, the fullness of the spirit are the seven gifts of the spirit. And, and, and now, so, uh, it, it, yeah, I mean, you, yes, in essence, especially since... Um, especially we know that to be the case since he's made a reference here to that passage, the root of, of, of David, and this spirit rests upon him. And now we, so it's just a different way of looking at it. So, yes. But he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne because he has the right to do this. 
Yeah. And this, this plays back to our um, Daniel picture, uh, Daniel 7, which we looked at in um, uh, Daniel 7, 13, 14, which we looked at in chapter 1 when we, we, we dealt with the image of, behold, he is coming with clouds. And it says, um, I was watching in the night visions, Daniel 7, 13, and 14. We've looked at this verse before. If you hang out with me long enough, you'll commit it to memory because I'm always bringing it up. I was watching in the night visions, behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. Behold, he is coming with clouds. And he came to the ancient of days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him, that is this son of man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. So this image in Revelation 5 now also hearkens to that. He went and took it. Here it's a lamb just taking it, and the emphasis here is on his right because he is the lamb who's fulfilled it. In Daniel, the symbolic emphasis is on um, the sort of ascension and his being brought to him, but they're talking about the same thing. So he took the, the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Now, when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down, fell down before the lamb, each having the harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. So the conquest of Christ, his resurrection, and really here his ascension, but they're all part of the whole of the same cloth are the focus of worship now. Now, um, in chapter four, there was a praise of God for what reason? Creation. In chapter five, now we're going to get the worship. Let's just, we'll just sing, we'll just listen to the song. Um, and, and notice, uh, the four living creatures and the 24 elders. So we have angelic beings and God's people together. Therefore, the angels and archangels with all the company of heaven, we laud and magnify. That's the joint worship of earth and heaven being restored to harmony. And they, the praise is because, because of sin, there's been disharmony, discord, creations out of whack, and even the heavenly beings are, you know, are grieved by that because they want it to be restored. And part of the mystery of God's love that, they, that, that, that even in the New Testament, it's, it's, it's described as, you know, angels are kind of, what's God doing here? You know, you create these people all got messed up and they're, they're learning about the love of God by watching this drama of human history. And now that they've seen it, it's like, so, so this worship and um, each having a harp, which probably, I mean, by tradition, David is the harpist, but it seems to um, refer to uh, participating in that in that sort of Davidic kingship and worship. Uh, and I, th I think, it, you know, one of the problems with this imagery that we just have to really quickly discard is, is that, you know, that this gets dressed down in popular imagery to heaven being a sitting on a cloud playing a harp. That's a lot different than what we're seeing here. And if you've ever been, you know, I think we're pretty fortunate musically here and there's been some moving stuff, but this would be just a, This, this is, so it's easy to make this simplistic, but this is um, the apex of music, of liturgy, of harmony, of order, of beauty, of grace. Um, 
And notice the golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Um, the 24 elders have this. This is their our priestly role. We're, we're offering prayers. And the incense is this sort of smoke that filled the temple all the time, representing the ascending prayers of the saints, because incense was always in the temple and, and the perpetual aspect of that. Well, and it's, it's also that there's, there's the ideas of, of, um, of specific intercessions made. There's also here this idea of a continual dwelling in Christ, that we actually live in the presence, and the constant prayer of our heart is always a part of this, longing for the kingdom, interceding for the needs. Um, and what we're going to get in a couple chapters, more or less, is that these golden bowls of incense are going to be thrown down, which means God's going to hear the prayers, and the result is he's going to vindicate his people. And this is exactly parallel with the framework of Easter, where Jesus was faithful unto death, and God rendered his life as a, a prayer offered to the Father, and he says, you're righteous, and he's raised from the dead. So now all who live in him, as we strive for that blameless and faithful posture, um, our prayers are going to be heard, and, and that's the vindication. And, and, and in the immediate context of Revelation, because the, old, the unfaithful Old Covenant people dwelling in Jerusalem are persecuting the faithful New Covenant people, that's going to be the judgment. And, and that's a little bit of a narrative shift from the old, Israel expected Israel to be justified and, all, and God to nail all the pagans. Here, it is, it is the Israelite, the Messiah justified, and then those who believe and put their faith in him justified. And then everybody who opposes them. And so that's that, and that completely shifts. And that's one of the narrative twists that, that you can, can be missed in Revelation is the judgments that are supposed to fall on the heathen are, are instead falling on God's whole covenant people. That's right. And you get this in the parable of the Great Supper, where the king, you know, makes a great supper, invites Benny. He says, ah, let it come. And, and he's to go, you know, gather as many as will come. And then at the end of, we have at the Great Supper, at the beginning of Trinity season, uh, the, the, uh, it's very evangelical. Go out and compel them. At the end, it is, um, What, what you know that that none of those bidden will taste of my supper, and it's that it's that one where the king shows up and finds a guy without a wedding garment. Very much ties into the imagery here. Well, but again, uh, Carol, Carol mentioned that the idea of the wedding garment or the lack of one in the, in the parable at the end of Trinity season. Uh, but again, you, you have to think symbolically, you know, where we, we put off the old man, we put on Christ. That's a garment image. We're, we're to be clothed with that righteousness that belongs to Christ. So it doesn't mean a random thing. Oh, you picked the wrong dress. It means you've not been about the business of interior transformation about, you know, believing in God, turning away from the other and growing into him, that's the lack of grace. So it's not a random, it's somebody who all their life didn't quite get it. And I think the idea, this is why even in the church, we, you know, it's a pair of the wheat and tares. We don't try to root out who's really in and who's really out, but there's a reality that some people kind of get it and some people kind of don't. And, and, 
we don't really know who how that really goes but it will be revealed in the day we're just we're not responsible that's why a lot of people want to say well you're this you're this it's like we worry about our own and we pray for those others that they might be in that's the heart we'll let god judge it okay they sang a new song this is a refrain throughout the psalms oh sing unto the lord a new song why would you sing a new song because something new has happened there's been a new creation here and so this requires a new song there's a whole host of psalms that have that uh reference in it and and um this is actually what we're using as our morning prayer canticle during easter tide for our online version and actually if you want a copy of it it's on the pretense too you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God. We shall reign on the earth. Again, not mysterious, fulfilling kings and priests, fulfilling the promise of Exodus 19, 6. I will make you a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Um, it's... Um, and, and specific things are highlighted. Uh, Messiah was slain and redeemed us from every, out of all nations, uh, to make us a new nation, the people of God. Uh, kings and priests, we to, to rule with him and to intercede with him, and we shall reign. We're going to reign and, and, and we're, we're going to rule with him. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. So, again, if we have any idea of a kind of whitewashed, cloudish looking scene, this is like, wow. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that is in them I heard saying, blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. So the eternal praise of God. Uh, but now the, the key here is what's, what's revealed to us in chapter 5 is this lamb is being worshipped. And since you cannot worship any created thing by the express command of the old covenant, you know that this lamb is the creator himself. Who, who has come down to take our humanity upon himself and to raise us up to be with God while never ceasing to be God. And this is the problem, is actually the, the, the interesting distinction, say with the Mormons or the Jehovah's Witnesses, because they can't really by definition worship Jesus because they don't see him as being God in the same way. And it, it ends up being a kind of mere following or a, uh, that's why they're heretics. <laughs> What's that? The Mormons believe that he, he began like us and worked his way up to this place, but not as it was in the beginning as now and ever shall be. Then the four living creatures said, Amen, and the 24 elders fed out and worshiped him who lives forever and ever. So there's a, like an antiphonal choir here. It's hard to, you know, you can't really describe, it's nice to get a video, you know, and see it, but it's, it's, it's a liturgy that, that is the liturgy of liturgies, of which our earthly liturgy participates in. When they say things like in the strong, like make the praise of God to be glorious, is why we take our effort to make it transcendent because it's it's merely a, it, it participates in this reality. Um, 
So here we have chapter four, God worships creator, chapter five, worship his redeemer for his redemption. And then we're going to now get into his judgments. And it's a very, judgment's a very unpopular thing um, in the modern world. It was too popular in, in the early medieval world where it was always being judged and and now we're like, oh, no, no, God's going to save everyone. No one's going to be, you know, except for a couple of really, really bad people. We can use the sentence of Hitler or Stalin. But beyond that, you know, um, but that's not what the Bible says. Um, and the, re the, the point of judgment, I think, is, is, is very important to, to grasp from the, the basic assumption of Scripture, which is all have sinned. And therefore all, but it, it's, it's, it's the sin itself is not so much the issue as it is the symptom. We're separated from God. And the evidence that we're separated from God is we commit sins. It's like having cancer. The evidence of that is you get a fever and aches. So those are culpable and there's nothing you can do. You can try to be better, but you're still separate. So the way there, there's two ways that the way to be to be saved from judgment is that God has made the provision by fulfilling the righteous requirements of his Torah himself and saying through repentance by acknowledging that we've rebelled against God. And putting our faith in him we can share in his verdict of righteousness and his spirit will begin to cleanse us and prepare us to actually do what he's doing, which is like be in the middle of that. And that's why we see salvation as a, as a process of growth. We're not ready yet. It's like, it's like when you, if you ever, you know, the, a numinous presence would, you kind of want to be near God, but then maybe not so much. Um, this is what Isaiah says, right? He gets a vision, uh, you know, woe is me, I'm destroyed. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And Isaiah was a pretty good dude for his time. You know, this isn't like, this is a, this is a prophet who, who is so, so the idea that some, you know, that there's some kind of grading curve and that the kind of basically good people, basically in our world, the idea of goodness is a surface concept. When you get beneath the surface, I don't care if you're Newport Beach or inner city, beneath the surface, there is sin. There is separation from God. And that's what happened. That, the only way to avoid, and the righteous judgment is God has, has, has placed judgment now in his son. <clears throat> and the church proclaims salvation in Christ. What is salvation? Very simply, it is to be saved from the judgment that is coming. And historically, um, that, that's a conceptual reality, but what actually happened in first century Israel is that judgment came on first century Israel. Those who put their faith in Jesus as new covenant people were warned to flee. They were literally saved from the judgment that came on Jerusalem. And, and then at the end of time, that's the idea that, that, that those who, who are in Christ are saved from that judgment. And there's no other way to, to, to be saved. And that's why a lot of the, the strange theology of our time always tries to minimize who Jesus is and, and exalt some idea that we can be good enough to, to get there. But, so we'll pick up next week with uh, chapter six. Let us pray. Lord, bless us and keep us. Lord, make his face to shine upon us, be gracious unto us. The Lord, lift up his countenance upon us and give us peace this day and forevermore. Amen. Good to have you with us. Bye, Thank you, Bishop. Thank you. Amy, Rhonda, Ruth. Thank you.